Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rosgem, and I'll be your host. Welcome to another episode of Emerge, Evolve, Lead. My guest today is Scott Vandenberg. Scott is an executive director at Origins Recovery, and he has been sober since October of 2010. So he's coming up on 10 years now. Scott is passionate about helping other addicts recover from that hopeless state of mind that we all know too well. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Maureen. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to have you here. We met on LinkedIn a while back and I saw, I think uh, I saw, I don't know if it was an anniversary or something you were celebrating that was big and I just, we connected. So yeah. tell, why don't you tell people a little bit about your life now, what life's like, and then uh, we'll get into your story. Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, and just just a point of clarification, uh, I've been I've been sober since May 27th of 2012. So um, oh, May 27th, celebrated 10 years. So yeah, I blasted that out on, on LinkedIn. Um, very uncharacteristic of me to do something like that, but uh, the response was was uh, overwhelming. Um, and uh, so that that's how we uh, that's how we connected. Well, isn't it amazing that we're all coming out of the closet now, right? Especially on LinkedIn, we're because after COVID and so much mental health crisis and so many people like package store usage went up like 300% or 400, something ridiculously huge. It was important for us to show that we, there's a lot of long-term recovery out here. There's another way. I think it's amazing how the narrative around substance use disorder disorders and, and mental health issues has evolved uh, over the last several years. Um, I think if anything good uh, has come out of the opioid epidemic is that it is changing the narrative around around substance use disorders. Uh, and I think there's this this growing understanding that this this disease does not discriminate. It doesn't it doesn't only exist in the shadows. Or on the fringes of society, it's it's something that affects all people from all demographics, all walks of life, and same with with mental health. Um, oh yeah. On social media, we see a lot of uh, A-list celebrities coming out and talking about their struggles with substance use and and, and mental health issues, uh, and really normalizing these issues uh, for for other people. Uh, and I, I think it makes treatment and seeking services more accessible and, and more normalized uh, for, for other people. So it's, it's a great thing. Oh, it certainly is because we all need help sometimes, right? And our society has been so, um, oh, let's just party and have a good time. Nobody, they, you know, they, they only show you the good times. It's like people are only snapping pictures when we're like, hey, how's it going no nobody's taking pictures of me puking in the toilet the next day you know so it's like right. we we have this euphoric recall and the way that we deal with things i think in this country is to you know stuff it let's just escape let's think you know try to try to minimize our feelings and honestly that's not the way as we know th those of us that are in recovery 
as we know. All right, so get, let's get back to your, 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 where are you? Tell us about anything you want about your family or anything about your job and what you're doing for a living. Well, uh, currently I'm the executive director uh, of our uh, South Padre Island programs um, for Origins Behavioral Healthcare. So Origins Behavioral Healthcare uh, is a, a company consisting of multiple programs in Texas and in, in Florida. So here in Texas, we have uh, our in, on South Padre Island, we have two campuses. We have a men's and women's uh, facility. Um, our women's facility is called Hannah's House. Our men's facility is called Origins Recovery Center, which is really where, where Origins began. Um, I've been in my current role for about two years now. Uh, I've worked for Origins since 2014. Um, I, I started as a clinical intern uh, working on the weekend. Uh, I, was, I was basically a tech. Um, and, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, for my for my first time in, in treatment, I, I thought, you know what, I could I could do this. I could do this. And uh, in in 2012, when I got sober, I was in a place where I could reinvent myself and do something do something different. And I had burned everything in my life to the ground, so I, I had the luxury of starting over. It, if, yeah, second chance, like clean slate. Good for you. Yeah, it, was, it, it turned into a really good opportunity. So I worked as a clinician for a few years, um, realized that my skill set lies more in administration than in direct patient care. I kind of romanticized the idea about being a, a, a therapist. Um, and, and, but what I learned after a few years was I'm, I'm not really very good at it. Uh, I understand clinical science, um, but the, that, that certain it factor that good therapists have um, I realize I don't have, but I'm gifted in, in other areas. And so I, my career went in a different direction. Um, I furthered my education a few times. Um, and uh, since 20, end of 2017, I've worked in an administrative role. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense because um, I consider myself a personality expert. I've studied it for many years. And there are some, you know, some types that are really super good people oriented and some are really good like systems and processing and task oriented and it sounds like you're more on that side and even though we have you know we have a passion for helping people get into recovery there's so many different ways that we can help in that process so i'm glad that you uh really explored that in yourself and uh, came to appreciate your talents for exactly to do what you're doing. So that's very good. So Scott, let's go back and talk a little bit about your story. How did you get into drinking and drugging? What happened? How'd you grow up? Anything you want to tell us about your story and how you figured out that you were an alcoholic? Well, I, I grew up in Montana. Uh, my hometown is Billings, Montana. I, I grew up in a very strict, conservative, religious family. Um, and Yikes. So, yeah, I, I, <laughs> it really plays into the, the rest of my story. But um, when I was in high school, I, I drank and smoked weed a couple of times, but it, nothing that was problematic. But I wasn't really given a whole lot of latitude when I was young. Like my, my parents kept, kept us on a, on a pretty short leash. Uh, but when I got to college, I did what a lot of college students do, and that is reject everything, all of the sensibilities and, and, and rules that are, their parents taught them, and um, started to uh, experiment more with drugs. Uh, I, I, was, I went through many phases uh, as, a, as, a, oh, as a 
late teen, 20 something, always looking for my identity. I, I had this perpetual crisis of identity and I never really knew who I was. So I, I found people in groups that seemed interesting and attractive and I identified and I identified with them uh, and assimilated and took on some of the characteristics of those groups. And one of the first phases groups I identified with were, were kind of the hippie scene. Oh, um, band culture, Grateful Dead, Fish, uh, widespread panic, and and in that culture, uh, drug use is is ubiquitous. A lot of a lot of weed, um, psychedelic drugs, uh, and and through that, I I began to need to change the way I felt. Now, if I'm if I'm being honest, and I really look back through my childhood and teenage years, I always wanted to change the way I felt. I was never okay just being me. Uh, but what I learned was that drugs and alcohol can change the way I feel very, very quickly and very, mm-hmm. very effectively. Um, so I, I went through several phases in my 20s, um, moved away from the hippie scene, um, into the club scene, got into meth for, for several years. Um, I, I joke, I don't know if it's really a funny joke, but I joke that I was a career meth user for, for several years. Um, but after several years of that lifestyle, I realized that, that this is not going to end well. I, I, right. I was people around me and some of the consequences they were experiencing, some of the consequences I was experiencing. Um, and so I, I did what many people do, and I did a, a geographic. Uh, I, I was living in Boise, Idaho at the time. Um, I relocated a, a few times and moved away from the hard drug lifestyle, but continued to, to uh, smoke weed. And, Drink and, and drink, yeah. Because like, I'm, I'm an adult and adults drink. And um, I was living in Washington State. And up there, wine, craft beer cultures is prevalent. And I, I embraced that. And, and that became my community. That became my identity uh, work, working in that world. So and now are you like in your mid-20s at this point kind of time? I'm or? in my early 30s. At this oh, okay. Point. All right. What did you go to school for? Uh, I was a sociology major. Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, because there was no math. And so what were you doing for work then during that time? Uh, I, I was a small business owner at a small construction company up in Washington State. Um, I uh, specialized in custom woodwork, uh, finished carpentry. Oh. Um, I was, yeah, I, I was self-employed, which lent itself to a lot of drug and alcohol use just because there, there was no accountability other than the accountability I provided myself. Right. <laughs> I'm with you, brother. (laughs) I have the ability to pretty much drink and smoke weed all day while I while I work and I manage. And I I did that air quote successfully for for a few years. Um, And did you get into were you in a relationship? I was. I was in a a serious relationship. Um and uh the most serious relationship I've ever been in, in fact. And we, we moved in together and my life for the first time took on this sense of, of normalcy. Uh, I, I was, I had a career. You kind of settled down a little. I, I settled down and I felt like, okay, I'm doing what my, my peers are doing at this stage in their life. Um, Sam's having children, but the, the, the settling, settling down, thinking about the future, um, stability, uh, responsibility, things that either eluded me or I deliberately avoided for, for most of my life. But in the background, I, I couldn't stop drinking. 
uh, alcohol and, and, and weed was, was always there in the background, but my life was manageable. Externally, it was manageable. Internally, not so much. So I, I started to experience what, what alcoholics and drug addicts experience, and that's this, this sense of emptiness, mm. and this, this void. And I, I tried to fill it with, well, one, drugs and alcohol, but other external things. Um, but I was never happy. I never felt okay. I always felt like there, there was something missing in my life, but I, I couldn't define what that was. I didn't have enough self-awareness or, or an understanding of my illness to know what that what what was causing that that emptiness it's a spiritual uh, deficit it's exactly what it was and i and i know that now it's it's painfully clear what that was um but but my my girlfriend at the time and really my friends and, and family beca- became concerned about how much i was drinking and i started to experience some consequences the first consequences i experienced were medical Oh, uh, I had a lot of abdominal pain and I, I didn't know what it was. And I was in and out of the hospital. And, and, and at one point I, I was in the hospital for five days. I was in my early thirties and I, I've been healthy my entire life. Like I've never been in the hospital for anything other than maybe a tetanus shot or something, something minor, but I was super sick one day and uh, I called my sister. She took me to the hospital. I was admitted for five days got a whole battery of tests, including a, a liver biopsy. And at the end of the five days, the, the, the doctor came into, into my room um, to share the, the results, my test results with me. Now, if you've ever been to the hospital, like back in the day, first thing that will happen is you'll be handed a clipboard with a questionnaire. And I remember when I admitted to, to the hospital that time, the very first question on that clipboard was, on average, how many drinks do you consume per week? Like, oh, this has got real. <laughs> Run, row. Like, first question. And I'm I'm doing the, the drink math. Like, uh, okay, what's a normal amount? Because it was probably in the triple digits. I don't know. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but it was no, right. If you're drinking like seven drinks a day, for example, then you're seven, that's 35. Well, that's probably too much. So I'll cut it down to 20 <laughs> or something, I mean, right? We do that. Well, I was at the point I was probably drinking seven drinks before noon. Okay. Uh, it, yeah. It, it was like that. So yeah. I'm thinking, okay, what's a normal amount here? Thinking, All right. Three, three drinks a day. That's kind of normal. Like someone who, you know, a couple of glasses of wine with dinner, maybe a cocktail or like 21, put that on. Anyway, the doctor comes in the, into the room. Um, my girlfriend was in there in the, in the room with me. And the doctor said, Scott, I know you're not being honest about how much you're drinking. And she said, I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm not saying this for shock value. But if you continue drinking the way you're drinking, you're going to be dead in a year. Oh, my God. And I'm like in my early 30s at, at that point. Like, it was your liver? Yeah, my liver was, was fibrotic. So it was fatty. It wasn't cirrhotic yet, but it was it was on its way. Um, I had pancreatitis and, and other GI issues. Oh, yeah. Like, like early stages of organ failure because of how much I drank. And, and, and it scared, it scared me. It scared me. As it should have. As it should have. And, and I thought, you know what? I need to take a break. This, there was no commitment to recovery or a sober life or anything. I'd be like, okay, this, this needs to stop. Like my life is pretty good right now. And, and I don't want to die. I wasn't in this place of hopelessness that I got into later, but uh, I thought, okay, 
I, I need to stop. And I made a decision. I made a firm resolution. And, and I, I swore to myself and to my girlfriend and my family, like, okay, I'm taking, I'm taking a year off. I'm going to quit. Okay. Because I don't want to die. That fear of dying kept me, I'm not even going to say sober. It kept me abstinent for about 10 days. It kept you dry for 10 days. Only 10 days. I I thought you were going to say 10 months. (laughs) No, it was 10 days. And and at the time I was remodeling this bar uh, as as a contractor. And it was, it was eight in the morning. I was at this bar doing, doing woodwork. And I looked over at the, at the, uh, the, the tap tower with all, with all the different beers. And I looked at it and I, I had this moment of things would be a lot better. If I did. And, and I started to give myself permission to do the very thing that I was telling me. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? I don't want to drink. I decided not to drink. And there I was approaching the, this tap tower romanticizing the beer yeah beer, thinking this is insane why am i doing this i don't want to be doing this i i do not have control over what's happening right now but i'm doing it and and i did and uh the then started all the lies all the all the deception all the the things that come along uh, so often with untreated alcoholism and addiction um, but it, it progressed, it progressed back in the hospital again and again. Finally, my family did an intervention on me. Uh, my girlfriend and my sister did an intervention and uh, I went to treatment for the first time. Okay. Was, how how old were you then? What's that? How old were you then? I was uh, 35-ish, 34, okay. 35. Yep. Went to treatment, went to, did my first medical detox and uh, went to an, an inpatient treatment program and had a great experience. And, and uh, oddly, um, while I was in treatment for the first time, I remember looking around and thinking, these are my peeps. These are, these are my people. Like I, I had never felt as connected um, to a group of people as I, did, as I did there. It's such a good feeling to know you belong. It, you oh, know, yeah. like everybody freaking gets it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was, I was thinking, you know what? I could, I could do this for a living. Now I still had my business. My business was still operating successfully. And I really wasn't in a position to change careers. But I thought, you know what? This would be maybe someday, maybe whatever passion project. Um, I could do this. But the problem was I didn't get the help I needed. Oh. And after, after getting out of treatment for the first time, I stayed sober or abstinent dry for a week. Oh, so you didn't go to, you didn't go to any meetings or call any of your people or. So when I was in treatment, I was introduced to 12 step recovery. I was given a a big book and a meeting schedule. Uh, I was told go to 90 meetings in 90 days find a sponsor, work the steps. Uh, but I didn't know what any of that meant. And I didn't know how to navigate that world. So I went to a meeting literally within hours of getting out of treatment. And I went and I said, yeah, I just got out of treatment. Everybody clapped and oh, that's so great and welcome. Newcomer's the most important person at any meeting. I'm like, all right, I felt, I felt validated, felt like I belonged. And uh, there was a, a guy at this meeting that I knew uh, from the bars 
Um, and he approached me and he said, so Scott, do you, do you need a sponsor? I said, yes, I do need a sponsor. I, I remember that, that that word was used when I was in treatment. I was told I need to get a sponsor. I'm not sure what, what a sponsor is or what a sponsor's role in my life is supposed to be. But yeah, yes, I do. I need a sponsor. He said, I'll sponsor you. Uh, and the instructions he gave me were, number one, check in every once in a while. Uh, and two, if you feel like drinking, call me. And, and that was it. But nothing about... Uh, no, it's supposed to be staff. don't drink and call me tonight. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was basically just don't drink and go to the meetings. Yeah. Like, okay. Um, oh, and I had, I had great intentions. I had every intention yeah, okay. in the world of staying sober. And these are the instructions that I were given. But I was, when I first got sober, there was this culture of meeting makers make it, just don't drink and go to meetings, put the plug in the jug, think through the drink, play the tape through, like all this bumper sticker wisdom that was presented as this program of, of recovery, none of which had any depth and weight. It wasn't about like having this transformative life experience. It was, it was just engage in these behaviors that will that will prevent you from drinking. Avoid your triggers. Don't drive past the liquor store. Don't go to a restaurant that serves alcohol. Now, now this wasn't presented as okay until you really get stable. Like you need to, you need to you, you need to live your life a little bit differently. What wasn't presented to me was a program of recovery that that could result in real freedom, real freedom from the obsession to change the way I felt. So, needless to say, I didn't stay sober. Uh, because I never worked any kind of program, and over the course of four years, uh, I was in I was in rehab five times. Wow! Uh, I was in a couple psych wards, a few jails, more hospitals and, and detoxes than I can count, and just the downward spiral. And the whole sad story we've heard a million times: the, the girlfriend left me, I lost my business, uh, financial ruin, health continued to deteriorate. Uh, relationships were were destroyed. The the whole story we've all heard. Um, until well, everybody has a different story, though, right? And yours is. It sounds like that spiral down. You know, you thought you hit your bottom, but it wasn't even. It there was a wake up call, but it wasn't enough. So you needed to experience some more pain. I did, and it's a miracle I survived. If if I really look back on it, because because. By 2012, I was literally dying of alcoholism. Uh, all, all those medical issues I experienced early on had only compounded uh, and amplified. Um, everything was gone in my life. I didn't have a driver's license or a bank account. I was unemployable, living in my parents' basement. Um, Emotionally bankrupt at 40. Everything Damn. just gone, just yep. destroyed, suicidal, and could not, could not stop drinking. And you couldn't figure it out. No, I couldn't. So you must have, I'm going to guess, did you have some sort of a spiritual experience? What happened? How did you finally kick it? So over the course of four years, like I said, multiple treatment centers, I went to a million meetings uh, and, and did what I, I thought I was supposed to do. Um, in 2012, Really, the only person who hadn't given up on me was my mother. Now, everyone else in my life did what healthy people should do, and that is distance themselves from a toxic person. So I, I totally respect my friends and family for setting the boundaries and set. But my mom is my mom, and she, and she loves me. Um, and she sent me to treatment, 
uh, one more time in 2012 uh, to this place in Texas called Origins. So fun fact, I actually got sober here uh, at, at Origins. And for the first time in my life, uh, I was given an adequate presentation of the 12-step program. Do you and really think it was knowledge? Oh, no, it wasn't knowledge. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> like you had the knowledge. All right, go ahead. I did, but I, I had never had an experience. I had never had an experience with the 12-step. I, I had an academic understanding of it. But understand, four years, four years in recovery, I had never worked a single step. Oh. My the steps were it, it, the things we read before a meeting, those posters on the wall of the clubhouses uh, that, that we read to pay homage to our founders. So you I, hadn't I, really done the, the work. You hadn't done the, the writing or the talking about it or the soul searching. None of it. None okay. Of it. I, I had done a lot of therapy, which I needed. I had a lot of baggage from my, from my childhood and youth that I, I needed to, to, to do some work on. Um, but I never developed a, a real program of recovery. Uh, again, the program of recovery I was presented were, were little rules and rhymes and acronyms and, and slogans and, and things like that. And even, even at the time, I'm thinking, I'm dying of alcoholism. There's no rhyme or acronym that's going to fix that. Like, I need, I need something else. Uh, but I was, I was finally presented with, it, with, with the program in a way that, that I had never experienced before. So I was, I was taken through the work. Through the, through the 12 steps, like word by word, line by line. Um, and, and for me, and this is just my, my personal experience, this is not the experience of others, but when I did my fifth step, I had this life-changing transformative experience that, that completely changed the way I experienced life. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying I was, I was cured or, 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 or anything like that. I'm, not, I'm, I'm still an alcoholic. But for the first time in my life, the obsession to change the way I felt was removed. Yeah, and, and that and happened that to me too. That, that was just the beginning. Um, but I, but that I, was the first miracle, and then all the miracles started happening. And then things, yes, and the promises started to come true in my life, and things started to materialize, and and I was able to to navigate life in real and meaningful ways. I was able to to show up with integrity. And, and, and live my life on these principles and, and things started to, in my life, started to, to reassemble slowly. So here's the thing. So you, and you had moved out of the state that you were in. So now you're actually in Texas. You don't know anybody. You don't know any drug dealers or bartenders or don't have a business. And so all of it now is about you and your recovery. So you just threw, did you throw yourself into it at that point? I, I had the I used the, the the word luxury now, but I had the luxury of starting over and completely reinventing my life. Like I had nothing to go yeah. home to. Yeah. What few possessions I had left were in a storage unit uh, up in Montana. So not I did, important, right? I did basically three months in treatment here, and then moved into sober living for ten more months. Um, worked uh, an entry level job. Uh, I went back to college and completed my bachelor's degree uh, over the course of that first year, but really engaged in recovery. So I spent Perfect. the first year doing, doing recovery, going to meetings, sponsoring others, service commitments, like living 
living that that lifestyle, really, really getting engaged, being poor. Uh, I didn't have a car for the first year, ride my bike, riding the bus, like, but, but it was the happiest I had ever been. I get it. I totally get it. Yeah, that's that happened to me, too. All right. So we have about five minutes left, but I want to hear now, how did you, first of all, I want, I want the advice that what is the thing you think if, if there's anything, what is the most important thing that you instigated into your life that has kept you sober? What is the key to your continued long-term sobriety? Persistently and consistently engaging in a 12 step program of recovery. Like, like that, and that that's it. That's my experience. And I'm not the recovery police. I'm not, I'm not one to say that if you're doing, if you're working a different program of recovery, you're wrong. And there's, there's only one right way to do it. This is just what worked for me. And it worked yep. it, it, in, in ways that I never could have imagined, like the, how things have materialized in my life or the last 10 years is mind boggling. If you would have asked me 10 years ago, Hey, Scott, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I would have missed the mark by a mile. Like, like I, I, I would, I would completely miss the mark. Um, but it's, it's, and it's not just, okay, going to, going to meetings and doing the activities of a 12 step program. It's applying the principles to every area of my life, practicing these principles in all in my all life. our affairs in, in my physical health and my professional life and my finances and my relationships and, and everything I do living on these spiritual principles, L- living with integrity, uh, being being responsible, being patient and kind and, and forthright and loving and, and and these principles that that look the, the, the founders of the 12-step program did not invent these principles. Oh no. Uh, Bill so, Wilson and, and, and Dr. Bob Smith were not the first pe- people to think that a life lived in service of others is a life well lived. Yeah. Oh yeah, nobody ever thought of that before. No, of course, these are principles that have, have existed all through human history. Well, you know, uh, Scott. I've been sober for 30, um, 37 years plus, right? So I'm in my 38th year. I had a lifetime in a corporate environment, incredible career, and I learned so much. And I've been on this road of personal growth and expansion um, ever since. It doesn't stop. It does not stop. It keeps getting better and better. And so I totally agree with what you're saying. And now I've been in my own business for you know, about eight years training leaders on how to be better leaders. And I realized, I mean, it just like hit me big time in 2020, like just recently that all of the best qualities of the best boss we ever had are all the things that we learn in recovery. These are the things our best bosses were honest. They cared about us. They listen with empathy. They show up. They're dependable, reliable. They and this is what we are now. We we get all these things. We're kind. We have tolerance. We appreciate diversity. We've listened to all these other opinions of all people because you said it. Do, it doesn't discriminate. We are able to be around every kind of person who also has experienced what we experienced because we're humans. But oftentimes people who don't have a program of recovery, they don't even realize 
because they don't allow themselves to be around this, this, the diverse, the, you know, huge amount of different types of people. Um, and they don't have the, the experiences of really listening to other people's pain. It's amazing how it changes us and the compassion that we feel. And also as leaders, this is my other thing. We're really good. We have really good BS detectors. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and we have, we can set boundaries and say like, that's not okay. And this is okay. And the good opinion of other people don't, it don't, doesn't matter as much because we know who we are now. So what is the greatest lesson that you've learned in recovery that has helped you in your leadership abilities? Hmm, It's an interesting question. Understanding the value of being service to others. Hmm. Now I know it's kind of cliche in the modern, in the modern workplace, but this idea of servant leadership. Yes. And, and I know that word, that term is thrown around a lot. Well, unfortunately, it's a little bit, sometimes it gets too much of a religious connotation. And it's not about that. It's about removing obstacles, right? And helping people to become the best that they can be. What do you see it as? If if I really look at my professional goals, I have to ask myself, are my professional goals to to better myself or to better those around me? And, And what those goals should be is to better those around me. I think I think that's part of part of good leadership. It's it's not leadership is not shouldn't be self-serving. This should not be about me getting more for me at the right. expense of people. Not about, about your ego anymore. No, it's about helping other people become better versions of themselves, yeah. become more, more empowered, to become leaders themselves. Now I know some leaders feel that empowering others can be can can be a threat. Uh, and, but and that's not the way. It's not. I do not want to be a gatekeeper. No. I, I want other people to be able to do my job. And I, I know how that can sound like, oh, well, if other people can do your job, then why do we need you, Scott? Well, to do other things. That's to right. Develop other things and develop right. other areas. Everything so. happens for your highest good. That's one of my beliefs that I just really love to tell other people. But I'm, a, I'm the same way. First, you need to develop yourself. And then you need to develop others. Like that just seems like a natural uh, next step in for long-term recovery, when you're in long-term recovery, being the role model, helping other people, whether it's just in the 12-step program or, you know, however that works for you or becoming a coach or an executive director or a mentor or just a sponsor. That is not, you know, take away that just in the beginning of that. A sponsor is an incredibly wonderful gift that you can give to somebody else, but you got to have the experience first, right? So what is your best advice for somebody who is getting ready to step into a leadership position, uh, somebody that's in recovery? Mm -hmm. Understand your fears. Good one. Taking on additional responsibilities. uh, being more and more visible in your role. Um, being more it's scary. More All of that's scary. <laughs> your decisions, yes. It's, it's a, a lot of fear comes with that naturally. Of course it does. And, and that's not a, that doesn't signify weakness or a lack of qualification. It's a natural consequence of being given more responsibility and having more people watch you. So 
the, 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 the 12-step program has given me tools to identify my fears and work through them and understand that that's what they are. They're, they're, they're fears. And look, I still, I'm two years into my executive director role, I still experience fear, fear of, fear of failure, fear of, of rejection, fear of, of not being liked, fear of ad infinitum. But I know how to process those things. And I have people in my life with whom I can, I can confide and, and discuss these things. And, and we're all working through this uh, together. But if I've, I have worked under leaders who have been crippled by fear mm-hmm. and make decisions based on fear. I know, it's bad. And, and it has a negative effect on, on, those, on those around them. Um, it can and, be really become toxic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we have to help people to change that, which is why I love to have people like you come on the podcast and share about these things. It's really important. And I would also say that as we wrap up here, um, is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up? And please tell people if they would like to contact you or find out more about uh, Origins Recovery, where can they reach you? Oh, uh, I can be reached. Um by my email, uh, S as in Scott, Bandenberg at originsrecovery.com or uh, call my office at 956-299-4743. I love talking to people, love being of service, love helping develop and cultivate the next generation of leaders. Um, And and that, uh, those transitions can be be challenging um, to navigate. Uh, but but the, I think the last thing I'll say is something I, I had to learn as a leader was how to manage stress. And er, early on in my leadership career, I tended to redistribute stress. If I was stressed, then I would redistribute that stress. To <laughs> I really had to learn to absorb and compartmentalize stress differently. And that's just... It's, it's one of the responsibilities of, of being a good leader. And I've, I've, I've also worked with leaders who, who quickly redistribute stress. High intensity situations, we're, we're, all, we're all in crisis now. Like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. So. I like the way you explain that. Stress management, you don't want to redistribute your stress. We call that nowadays, you know, the new buzzword is emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. right? And the longer you stay sober and the more you learn about yourself and your style and what triggers you and what your fears are just like you said you got to know those things about you then the less other people can trigger those things in you and the less you need to redistribute so this is this is great advice scott thank you so much for coming on the podcast today i really enjoyed uh, meeting you and getting to know you and hearing your great advice likewise morning it was great to be here If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters.